intense, right? It's intense. Well, listen, let, let me begin just by saying um, it has been my honor to serve you guys over the last four years, and um, that, that gift card to the Sizzler is going to go to good use, so, um, so I'm excited about that. No, I'm joking. It, 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 has, uh, it has been a, an, an honor, and, and I'm so thankful that God led us here to Lafayette, and so hear me say thank you. Thank you for allowing me to serve you over the last four years. So, um, Well, I'm looking forward to opening God's Word with you today. And in fact, if you have your copy, go ahead and make your way to Revelation 17. Revelation 17 is where we're going to be today. Um, and as you saw in the bumper there, uh, we are back into the book of Revelation today. And actually, we have it planned out that we are actually going to finish the book of Revelation just before Thanksgiving. So we'll be all the way through the book, and we'll have read through verse by verse all the way through which is a big feat. A lot of, a lot of people are scared to do that. It's a, it's a scary book at times. So um, I do want to remind you as well, also Roger mentioned it, but remember to be in prayer for Derek, our, our lead pastor, as he's in Argentina, and um, he's having the opportunity to preach and to build some relationships so that we might could, um, could go back and serve there in Argentina. And um, several weeks ago, uh, you know, he, he told me that he was going to be uh, go, going to Argentina this week and that I would have the opportunity to preach. And I was grateful because I, I always enjoy getting to expose God's word to you. I enjoy that. Uh, and I was really excited until I saw what passage uh, I was going to have to preach. Uh, so what, what I'm saying is I'd like to take this moment to publicly thank our pastor for allowing me to preach this morning. Um, and so it, we're going to be in Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6. And at, at face value, today's passage can be one of those really confusing passages in the book of Revelation. Um, but before we get to Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6, I think it would be really helpful for us to take a minute and be reminded of how we got to this point. Because it's been a couple of months since we were in the book of Revelation back in the spring and um, if you're new with us, we, I, I'd like to catch you up to where we are. I would encourage you to go back and listen to all of these sermons. They're on our website uh, or on YouTube. Um, but let, let's, let's talk about where we began. So we began studying the book of Revelation over 18 months ago now. It's been a long time we've been in this book. And we decided that we were going to let the Scripture speak to us. We were trying to suspend any preconceived notions that we might have had or any preconceived thoughts that we had about the book. And we were going to let the book speak to us, let scripture speak to us. And so we also decided that we were not going to look to try to decode any hidden secrets. We were not looking for any definite dates for the return of Christ because the text doesn't offer those things to us. There's no hidden code that God is waiting for us to find. There are no exact dates for when Jesus would come back. And so what we're doing here is looking at what Revelation tells us. And the thing that shines out of the book of Revelation from 1-1 on is an incredible picture of our beautiful, exalted Savior who is worthy of all praise and worship. That starts right in verse 1, and it has carried through all the way till now, and it will carry through all the way until the end. We have also seen that there is a real enemy. There is a real enemy who is warring against God and his people, and he's a defeated foe, but that doesn't mean that he's going to go quietly. We've also seen that um, the time will come when God will judge the earth. John has been allowed to see visions taking place at the end of time. Uh, and most recently, in chapters 15 and 16, we saw the seven bowls of judgment poured out by God on the earth. And then we get to chapter 17. 
One of the things that's interesting about the book of Revelation is that several times we've seen this already, and we're going to have another example of it here, where John relates this vision to us that he receives, and he tells us the whole vision, and then in the next chapter, he looks at the same situation from a different angle. And that's what we're going to have today. That's what we're going to see over the next several weeks, is that we encounter this happening here, that at the end of chapter 16, history is ended with the pouring out of the seventh bowl of God's wrath and judgment. But John now circles back to look at that situation from a different perspective. Okay, is everybody on the same page with me there? So we're looking at the same situation from a different angle. So let's read John 7, or I'm sorry, Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6. If you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? Starting in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried, away, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. So for me, studying this passage really begins right where John ends there in verse 6. Now, the translation that I just read, it says, I marveled greatly. Uh, some of yours might say that. Another way that, that the Greek could be translated there was, I was greatly confused. Same, John, greatly confused as well. What in the world did we just read, right? What in the world? But I think that one of the things that we're going to see here is that over the next few chapters, we have two pictures that are given to us. Um, Danny Aiken uh, is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he has a commentary on the book of Revelation, and he calls the book of Revelation the tale of two cities. One city, he writes this, One city is Babylon, which represents evil and opposes the things of God. The other city is Jerusalem, which is the city of God. This will be most prevalent in these final chapters of the book. Chapters 17 and 18 will describe what happens to Babylon. And then 19 through 22 will discuss Jerusalem. And one of the things that we see here is that these two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem, are represented by women. Babylon is the prostitute that we read about here in, verse, or in chapter 17 and 18. And Jerusalem will be the bride that we read about in later chapters. So today, we're going to begin dealing with sort of the darker side of things as we consider the judgment that God pours out on Babylon. Now, one thing that we should remember is that in Scripture, Babylon comes to represent kind of the stereotype of an idolatrous empire. Babylon was the, the um, empire that came in and overthrew Jerusalem and took Israel into captivity in the Old Testament. And that idea of an evil, ungodly nation coming in and taking over the people of God comes to represent evil in, in Scripture. We see that in several places. 
But today, let's dig into what John tells us here, because I think that there's three things that we see in these verses. So first, the first thing we see is that the judgment of God is real. If you're taking notes, I'd write that down. The judgment of God is real. Look at what, again, at what it says in verses 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, and with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. Now, chapter 17 begins with one of the angels who had just been pouring out the bowls that we read about in chapter 15 and 16. He invites John to come and view the punishment and judgment that's about to be poured out on this notorious prostitute. That judgment can really be seen as kind of an elaboration. Remember, we're looking at what we just read in 15 and 16 from a different angle. It's kind of an elaboration of those bowls that we read about in the previous chapter. It's also an introduction that really is going to be explained further on. So in the weeks ahead, I would encourage you, come back, because this will make a lot more sense in about three weeks when we get through chapter 17 and 18 of what, what we're talking about here in these first verses. But in a way of introduction, know this, that God's judgment is real, and it's really going to be poured out on evil on the earth. One thing that we can definitely see here in these first two verses is that there is a distinct contrast between this woman that we're seeing here, the prostitute, and the bride of the lamb that we'll read about later. And if we were to look forward, we would see that one of these women is destined for final judgment, and one is destined to attend the wedding supper of the lamb. And that's an exciting thing that we'll get to read about in several weeks. But um, here, the prostitute is referred to as great because of the spiritual adultery and worship of false gods that she is involved in and that she has led others to be involved in. Now, I want to make sure that we understand here, the imagery here is not directly connected to sexual activity, necessarily. What Rather, John is giving us this image to help the reader understand how God views spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness to him. It's utterly disgusting to him. And it is worthy of full judgment. So disobedience and unfaithfulness to God is viewed by God as sexual immorality that we would view as disgusting, right? It's those, those things that are not um, something we want to be a part of. The prostitute has led kings and rulers in the world to be involved in this idolatry. And in turn, those rulers and kings have led nations astray as well. This is a description of a world where anything goes. Anybody can do whatever they want. People do what they want in pursuit of power, possessions, and pleasure. Some great alliteration right there. Power, possessions, and pleasure. You guys didn't find that as funny as I did, and that's okay. That's okay. But um, the prostitute has led the world to adopt this system based on seeking personal gain over any righteous demand that God may place on our lives. It's all about me and what I want. Because of the spiritual idolatry and spiritual adultery, the world, um, the world has turned to it instead of turning towards God, and therefore, God is pouring out the judgment that we read about back in chapter 16. You know, most biblical scholars, um, I read several commentaries this past week, most of them believe that what we're reading about here is the sixth and seventh bowl. So we don't have time to read it today, but if we were to go back to chapter 16, verse 12 and following, most biblical scholars think that this is another angle of what happened with those sixth and seventh bowls. 
However, the judgment here is a real judgment, and this will be fleshed out later in this chapter and, and into chapter 18, but we'll get to that eventually. The thing for us today to remember is that God takes his commands seriously, and so should we. He will not allow disobedience, spiritual adultery, or idolatry to go unpunished. We should not view these words here flippantly as if it's just something that will happen in the way off future. God's judgment is real now for us, and so we should seek to be obedient to him. We should seek to follow his commands. God's not just blowing smoke in the book of Revelation. He's not just trying to paint a picture of himself as some big authoritarian. He's saying, I take this seriously, and when I said that, I meant it when I asked you to be obedient to me. His judgment is real, and we've seen all throughout the book so far that that's the truth. Therefore, we've got to be aware of what John says next. Look at verses 3 through 5. John says, And he, the Spirit, he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. The second thing that we see in this passage here is that the world can be, can be seductive and alluring. The world can be seductive and and alluring. So John is, is carried out into a wilderness, or your, your translation may say a desert, that he's carried out into the desert by a spirit. And we need to talk about that for just a second, because there's, there's two different pictures that we are presented with throughout Scripture of a desert. Now, in some places, the word desert can be used as a positive symbol. It can be a, a place of comfort or rest and a place where God renews. Or it can be used in a negative way, as a symbol of testing or devastation. And in this context, I think it's pretty clear here that this is not a place of divine protection or nourishment. This is a place where judgment is going to be poured out, and it is a, an appropriate setting for that judgment. And John sees the woman that he mentioned earlier sitting on a beast as if she's controlling it, almost as if it's um, the, the image that I, that I had in my mind was like it's a horse with a bridle in its mouth, that even though it's bucking, this woman is controlling this beast. The description of the beast that she sits on matches the description of the beast that rose from the sea that we read about back in Revelation 13, 1 through 10, where it talks about the beast rising from the sea that had um, seven heads and ten horns. So, this beast back there in 13 had great power and was an enemy of Christ and the church, and I think we could make that same correlation now, at first glance, this woman is beautiful. Her clothes and jewelry are stunning. The purple and scarlet of her clothes signify luxury and splendor. I mean, these are royal colors, royal colors that she's wearing. She's lavishly adorned with gold and precious stones, and she's very attractive initially. However, we quickly see that there's something horribly wrong here in this picture. She holds in her hand a golden cup that is filled with abominations and impurities. And so while this woman may initially seem attractive, she brings death with her. She brings judgment with her. 
All of her wealth is an abomination to God when it's coupled with her immorality and her sin. And honestly, this is how Satan has worked from the beginning. Sin always comes to us disguised in luxury and fun. However, just beneath the surface is the corruption and death of spiritual adultery. This is why we must never be in a place where we are not seeking after God. Our enemy is crafty. We've learned that all throughout the book of Revelation. We have a crafty enemy, and he will parade sin in front of us in an alluring package that will trick us if we're not connected to Jesus. If we're not watchful, we can find ourselves devoting our lives to chasing after material wealth and pleasure instead of chasing after the true satisfaction that we find in God. We have to be chasing after that. In verse 5, we are finally told who this woman truly is. The woman has something written on her forehead. And remember, throughout Scripture, having something written on your forehead is a big deal. It's a part of identity. We saw that. Um, we'll see that when we read about the mark of the beast. But um, on her forehead this, of this woman, it says, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Remember, we said earlier that Babylon represents a system of godlessness that leads people away from worshiping God and to their own destruction. Looking again back at, uh, at what Danny Aiken had to say, I think he explains this very clearly for us. He writes this. This is an ever-present reality, a seductress that exists and entices in every age and every generation. It is a this-world perspective. Seduced by the sirens and idols of the day, we run madly down a path of spiritual and eternal suicide. This is a, something that we face even today, that there is the allure to turn away from God and towards something that will bring us momentary pleasure, but eternal damnation. And that's not something that we need to be seeking after. If we're not seeking after God, if we're not constantly letting him speak to us through his word and seeking after him in all our ways, we can be seduced by worldly ideologies and systems that lead us away from God to begin grasping after things that have no eternal significance. There was a guy um, in, in the 4th and 5th century. Uh, he was a very famous early church father. His name was St. Augustine of Hippo. And it is St. Augustine, not St. Augustine. St. Augustine's a city in Florida. And it's a great city. I'd encourage you to go. But St. Augustine of Hippo, spelled the same way, he was an incredible theologian and a priest in the early church. He lived in northern Africa in the 4th and 5th centuries. And I would strongly encourage you to read some of his works. But I want us to see something that he said. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. It's going to be on the screen. In one of his greatest works, a book called City of God, he wrote this. It's on the screen. God is always trying to give, us good, or give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. So the question today is, what are your hands filled with? What is in your hands that's keeping you from receiving the good things that God's trying to give you? Have you been seduced? And listen, don't beat yourself up over that. The enemy is crafty. We've all been seduced at times by um, the allure of sin. But what's in your hand today that's keeping you from receiving the good thing that God's trying to give you? While the world can be seductive and alluring, we must stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit against what the world may throw at us. We must stand firm. It's that important. If we wish to 
uh, escape the judgment that God will pour out on evil and sin. We must stand firm in the Holy Spirit. Well, the final thing that we see in this passage is that following God will be costly. Following God will be costly. Look at verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. So the identity of the woman has finally been revealed. And when that identity is revealed, the allure that she initially held falls away. And verse 6 reveals that the prostitute has had her sights set on the people of God throughout history. It says that the woman is actually drunk with the blood of righteous martyrs who have given their lives in following after the Lord. Those who stand for the cause of Christ and those who witness to the world about Jesus by their words and their actions are squarely in the sights of this evil system. These are the saints, believers who have sacrificed their lives in faithful testimony to Jesus. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they were burned at the stake or fed to lions, but they may have lost things that they wanted because they chose to follow after Christ. That may be the story for some of you in here, that because you took a, st- a firm stand in your faith, you were passed over for a promotion at work, or somebody decided not to be friends with you anymore. Those are sacrifices that we make, and yet we must choose to follow after God. Throughout the book of Revelation, the people of God are required to remain faithful in spite of the intensity of persecution, even at points to the point of dying. But the thing that's beautiful about this is that the example we get from the saints of Christ is that there is no hint anywhere that that during this terrible persecution that the saints are hiding in the forest or in caves or in remote places so that they won't be killed. No, they are standing, engaged in fearless witness throughout the book. They stand firm in their faith, no matter the cost. And as followers of Christ, we are called to the same level of devotion to our Savior. There's going to be times where it will be costly. There's going to be times where it will be difficult. However, we'll see in the coming weeks that the cost is ultimately worth it when we get to eternity and get to remain in the presence of the Lamb. When we get invited in to the wedding supper of the Lamb, anything we had to face in this life will just melt away. It will not matter anymore. Because the marriage supper of the Lamb is a celebration for those who have stood firm in Christ. And they are welcomed in. So we'll have an opportunity here in just a moment to declare our devotion to the Lord through celebrating communion. We're going to do that here in just a minute. And while it is a time for us to remember what Jesus bought for us through his death and resurrection, it's also a chance for us to declare to a watching world that we are devoted to following after Jesus and not following after a worldly system of self-gain. And so we return right to where we began, at the end of verse 6. Hopefully, you can better understand John's confusion now. I mean, he was told at the beginning of this vision that he was going to be shown the judgment that would be poured out on the great prostitute. But at this point, she appears to be pretty triumphant, does she not? She's drunk on the blood of the martyrs. She's triumphing over the world. However, next week, we'll begin to see that she is also a defeated foe. And the real judgment of God is going to be poured out. So while at the moment, 
It can be a little confusing to say, I was told there was going to be judgment, but it seems like that got missed. Where, where did I miss it? It's coming. We'll see that here in just a few weeks. So the question is then, how do we respond to a passage like this? What do we do? Well, I think there's really only two options. First, you can disregard it as just another story in a book and go on living your life that you decide to live for yourself. The problem with that option is that it falls right into the trap that was just described in this passage. We would fall for the false seduction and allure of a world system that only cares about itself. And so, lovingly, I would strongly suggest you not take that option. The other option is this. We follow the example of the saints and we remain devoted to our creator. We follow after Jesus no matter the cost, trusting that he loves us and has a plan for us. And we can begin by expressing our devotion through celebrating communion. And I want to be clear about what we're about to do right here. Now, this is a very, very important thing that we do as a church, as a body of believers. But eating this small piece of bread and drinking some juice does not make you a follower of Christ. We're about to what we're about to celebrate is only for those who have committed their lives to follow after Jesus in everything they do. So if you've not done that yet, that's okay. Today you can. You can follow after Christ today. His arms are wide open for you. But if you've not done that yet, I would respectfully and lovingly ask you to abstain from taking. Because what we're doing here is declaring to Jesus, we love you and we thank you for everything that you've done for us. And we declare to the world, I follow this Jesus who was broken and who bled for me so that I might be bought back from a worldly system that only cares about itself. And here's the marvelous thing. God has promised to be with us. The Holy Spirit is with us in this room right now. Right now. The presence of God is with us as we remember what Jesus did for us at the cross to ransom us back from a worldly system that only cares about itself. So what I'd like for us to do is I'm going to have Kathy come up just to play for us. And I want us to take a moment to prepare ourselves to celebrate. A lot of times we come to this moment and it's so somber that we miss the point. Jesus is not still dead you guys realize that, right? He rose. So when we celebrate communion, it's a party for us, guys. We're celebrating the fact that we have a Savior who overcame for us, and he has invited us to overcome as well. So what I want us to do is take just a moment to prepare ourselves to celebrate. Kathy's going to play for us here in just a minute. I'm going to pray, and, and as I do, I, I'd like to go ahead and invite our deacons to to go ahead and come down. Uh, but we're going to have a moment. Just talk to the Lord. Tell him how thankful you are for what he has done for you. It's too quiet in here right now. We're getting ready to celebrate, all right? So let's take a moment. Let's pray together. And let's thank God for what he's done in our lives. And deacons, as you're gonna, if you're serving, please go ahead and come on down. Uh, and we'll celebrate together here in just a minute after I pray. <laughs> 